Are you excited for this one, Jackie? I'm ecstatic! You know, I was actually on this one. You can go to Landon's YouTube, Land Inventing. Mm -hmm. And I got, actually got to be in the live stream. Yes, and talk to our guest. It was very fun. Yes, this was actually filmed back in October. Uh-huh, you want to say the guest? It's Terry Harden. Terry Harden. We love Terry. She's fantastic. Yes, these are just some of the words used to describe Terry Harden by fans and enthusiasts who have attended her talks, seminars, and classes. Her career spans a multitude of artistic endeavors and over 42 popular films and television shows. Ooh, ain't that right, Kip? Terry Harden is energetic and captivating. I agree with that. Yeah, I talked to her. Another failing to inspire audiences who attend her public events. Open to teaching all levels of creative talent, her unique blend of wit and passion to continue to foster excitement among fellow artists and beginners alike. Yeah, I was inspired. <laughs> With the prestigious title of Imagineer through the Walt Disney Company, Terry Harden learns authenticity, that's a big word, and skill to her commissioned lurk, which has included dimensional prototypes and realizations of classic character characters treasured by collectors worldwide. Her design and installations are a feature of Disney parks in Florida, Paris, and Tokyo. I like saying that, Tokyo. This is only a fraction of Terry's ongoing commitment to character and experience creation. Whatever the project or event, her sense of fun, friendly attitude, and accurate understanding of emotional resonance will make it a success. And we love Terry Harden. She's amazing, right? She's taught the tears for Henson. Mm -hmm. She's uh, an Imagineer, legendary Imagineer. Mm -hmm. So let's get on with things. Okay, I, I agree. Come on, Kip. Go ahead and start off the podcast with Terry Harden. Hello and welcome to Landon Live. My name is Landon Harvey and happy Halloween. This is very exciting. Uh, tonight we have on Terry Harden, who you might recognize from Food Network's Outrageous Pumpkins. And she's an all-around artist. Terry, how are you doing tonight? And can you go ahead and share all of your titles that you've had in your career? Oh my goodness, if I do that, you guys will have your bunny slippers on. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I had a fan that did a chronology of my life. And after 20 pages, I said, oh, my goodness, you look through it. You don't believe I don't believe I did it. So it's kind yeah. of surprising that that's that's what's happened. But I just I think a lot like you, Landon, I ran through and said to myself, I want to do this. So let's just light this candle and go for it. Uh -huh. You know, so yeah. so started out uh, making a lamb chop puppet. I was bullied as a kid. I can't imagine why I look like everybody else. But uh I was bullied as a child. I'm half black, half white. I was born um, in 1957. So those of you doing the math, I'm 63. Um, <laughs> but the thing was, is that as a little kid, I was very light skinned, but I had hair that was African-American or black, as I like to say, because there are many people out there that uh, don't like right. titles. And so let's just say uh, my dad's black, my mom's white. And so there's where the bullying came in. And I decided I to build a little character that I could talk to and be with. And I saw Sherry, I saw Sherry Lewis and uh, duplicated her lamb chop. And that became my, my little confidant. And since then puppeteering has been a big thing for me. I, at first I thought, no, but I wanted to be an actress and people didn't like the way I looked. Okay. So you go in and yeah. you audition as an actor and they take one look at you and they say, yes or no. A lot of times before you even open your mouth. 
And in my case, they didn't like the way I looked. They could tell that I had uh, very much, um, you know, my hair stuck out in all directions. It wasn't always dreadlocks. And uh, and I looked like a white kid with this blonde afro. And they were like, uh, no. So uh, they went for my sister, who uh, has long, dark hair and has cocoa skin. And they went with that because that was more of an inbox for commercial and television at the time. And uh, so I was concerned. I In school, I could do all these plays. No problem, no problem. But then I was introduced to puppets. And puppets allowed me to do my art, build my characters, and not worry about how I looked. So that's how puppets kind of came into being. So Ghostbusters, Men in Black, uh, Jungle to Jungle, Indian in the Cupboard, uh, Flintstones 1 and 2, Men in Black 1 and 2. Um, I've done commercials like the Foster Farms Chickens, uh, Philadelphia Cream Cheese, have worked with Tony Urbano on the Chicken McNuggets and a couple of McDonald's commercials. I'm an actor, so I was in Shark as a jury foreman. So it just, it just, and then I'm an Imagineer who designed attractions all over the world. So it just, just, you know, you're piling it on and you go, wow, I can't even believe it. So what was, what was your first project that you had that? that you undertook that was like, wow, this is my career is going somewhere. Like, I feel I'm successful. Yeah. It was called BB Beagle. It was called BB Beagle. So BB Beagle was a Hanna-Barbera production. I was something like 18 or 19. And what had happened is Jim Henson over in London had just announced they were no longer going to do the Muppet show. So everybody and their brother in Hollywood decided, well, let's jump on this bandwagon and try and do some sort of a Muppet showy thing. And BB Beagle with Hanna-Barbera was that. In fact, I remember very vaguely BB Beagle's theme song, but it was just like they had taken every line in the Muppets and made it, tweaked it, and then made it about the BB Beagle show, which was about a beagle and his oh, crazy wow. characters. Oh. And, uh, it, it was a we had uh Joyce DeWitt as our guest from Three's Company, which if you're younger than that, you may not know what that is, but Google it. And then <laughs> right. I'm sure we have some listeners that are like, Oh yeah, I know who that is. They but they put me on a plane for my first time, flew me up to Canada for my first time. I was happy to have a star at my door for the first time. I'm 19. I had to use what's called a television monitor and had no idea because all of my puppets I had done like right here. So so with them being right here or right here, not up in the air and looking at a monitor down there, I had never done that before. So I had to practice it. And if if people out there have done puppets before, the monitor is a small television screen that shows you what's on camera. It's a wonderful device. But back in those days, they did not flip, meaning you now can activate your camera so that much like a selfie, it mirrors your movements. When you raise your right hand, it looks like your left hand because it's like you're looking in a mirror. And uh, right. one of the things that I didn't realize I was doing is I was doing a show called Lost on Earth where half of the puppeteers didn't like their monitors flipped and the other half liked their monitors flipped. And I could jump oh, wow. between both camps without even without even knowing it. So I'm ambidextrous, but I was going through and people were like, how are you doing that? And you were, what? And then I went, oh man, yeah, that is a little weird. But it was because of my early training without a flipped monitor that I was able to just kind of take to do it. But I didn't realize it until someone brought, 
you know, pointed out. So my first show was BB Beagle. And I felt like a rock star because I had been working at a photomat store, which is a little kiosk where people used to bring their film to be developed. Film is the stuff that used to go in cameras. It was never digital. It wasn't digital. Little things dropped in. Anyway. Right, right. (laughs) And I was making, I think I was making like five bucks an hour, six bucks an hour. Thought I'd died and gone to heaven, right? And then I was hired for BB Beagle and I was making 1100 a week. So it was huge for such a young girl to get, you know, that felt very successful. So did you, know, you have a portfolio or how did, I mean, did they just put out, you know, this, a need for how, how were you, how did you go from, you know, working at that kiosk to. It's a good question. So there was a call for puppeteers and it was with Sid and Marty Croft Productions. They wanted puppeteers. And what would happen is that they would put you through little tests. It was kind of like a escape room, except for you didn't have to escape. It was just a different thing you had to do. So the first thing you had to do, the first thing you had to do was a marionette. And if you could make the marionette walk, you would proceed to the next, or it could do something. And I had loved marionettes since I was a kid. So I had built several. And then they take you to hand puppets. And they would watch you do your sinking and stuff. And Tony Urbano headed that up. That's how we first met. Tony Urbano, known for cruise ships and also the little Snuggles Bear. And he did McDonald's. He did all kinds of stuff. And they picked 30 people to be in this training. And I must have, that point, must have been about, oh, 16. And there were three women and the rest were all men. So that was one of the benefits for me is because back in those days, now there's more women who are puppeteers, but back then... There weren't many women who were puppeteers, and and uh, so they they were really excited. Did you worry about that going in, or were you did you take it as a challenge? What was that like? I actually like, didn't know because they would bring us in individually. So those of you uh-huh. who love and know Jim Henson, and those of you who are from New York, you know that the new well, and I'll explain it to you. On the East Coast, they do group auditions. On the West Coast, we don't like that. Okay, we're like a voiceover person. We want to come in individually and we want to do our shtick individually because we don't want others to take what we, we've developed. Okay, right. I would imagine with the ventriloquist, it's similar with uh, any performer. They have these things that they do that are absolutely yours. But right, your bits Jim are your, felt, yeah, your to. Mm-hmm. And Jim felt like an ensemble was better. So when Jim came to the West Coast, we didn't take too kindly to him putting us in the same room at seven at a time. So uh, some people got really angry about it. And I was just like, well, you know, it is what it is, but I would go in and audition myself. So for this, I went through the room doing each one of these things by our, by myself. And if I advanced, I stayed on the top level. And if I didn't, if they thought, okay, this person's not going to work, you went downstairs and you were kicked out onto the street. So it was, was just it like, like I said. <laughs> so it was like, whoop, gone, eh, you're not it. You know, <laughs> where am I? You know? did, you, did you have like a specific amount of time you had to like accomplish these goals or like for each room? No, or they seemed to be, work? they just wanted to see if you could do it. Also, they wanted to see okay. if you had a, okay. a, a, a good personality. I think is probably part of it. Of course, back then, I think they just wanted to make sure you had good lip sync and that you had good uh, 
you knew where the puppet could be, you know, on camera. You know, you mm -hmm. were looking at a monitor, so you didn't want the puppet to lean like this. They'd be like, the person's do the entire show and their arm is not going straight, you know? <laughs> right, right. The whole performance is like this, you know? They're like, wait, All wait, the minor wait, detail that happened that. to the characterization and the realism of the puppet. Yeah, they will, you know, and then they want to know how long you can do this straight up and over your head because you're, you've got that over your head for quite a long time. And uh, so... So that's that's sort of the, the things that we went through. And then when we were in this training course, we worked with June Foray for voices. I mean, you don't get any better than June Foray. And um, I worked with uh, Harvey Limbeck, who was a comedy director back then. So we'd worked mm -hmm. with the top people, Tony Urbano as puppeteer, and so on and so forth. And uh, and then they, they, at the end, said, okay, we're going to keep you guys in mind. And they would bring us on for various shows. And uh, my first show was Earl Roberts Celebration. <laughs> Man. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, so you felt like you were doing it. Anytime someone called you to do a puppet show, you felt, you know, that they said, okay, we're going to pay you to do puppets or ventriloquism, like with you, ventriloquism. You go, okay, right. I, a score. That's great. Sure. So had you already been familiar and done, you know, carvings and different type of sculpting? I mean, had you done that from when you were, you know, in school till this point? Or did you pick that up later in your career? Like, were you, did you already have these it skills? It happened later. It happened okay. later. I, um, I was drawing and painting mostly. And then in high school, I discovered actual sculpting in clay. But I soon realized that sculpting in clay was going to be expensive for me and my little budget. So I started tearing up seat cushions and chair cushions and started to carve with scissors. You know, sure. those Fisker scissors. I started to carve mm -hmm. with that and make my characters out of foam, thinking that this would hold me over until I got hired and I found out how they really did it. And then when mm -hmm. I got there, everybody wanted to know how mine were made because they were lighter and not so heavy and easier, you know, to do. So people, I would, was... Well, I want to know how you guys are doing it, you know? So yeah. It was a bunch of collaborative artists. I remember when I was 16, I was building puppets for my, um, um, like an elective we had in school. And I was taking another class and I was building these characters. And I, this lady leaned over and her name was Jeannie. And she had a puppet theater that the, the, who's who of Hollywood would bring their kids. And so she saw my characters and she said, do you want a job? And I was like, what do you do? And she says, I'm Genie of Genie Land. Okay. <laughs> and she said, uh, you're going to love it there. And I, I really did. It was a place where kids would have a birthday party. And in the front area, that was your cut your teeth time. You did games while the kids all gathered and waited to go into the theater and then you could work in the food and beverage area, cake and punch and stuff. And then you could also work up in the in the loft doing stage lighting. So I told her if I came, I just wouldn't do food and beverage, but I would do the other things. Oh. And she was like, right, right. She she said, really? And I said, it's not to be difficult. It's just that I'm I'm not into food and beverage. I don't want to clean up junk. Mm -hmm. And so she was kind of right. like, hmm. And I, she said, well, would you design a show for me? I said, yes. So she said, okay, if you design a show for me, 
then you can skip that. And her daughter was really angry because she said, you're supposed to go from front of the house to the food, to the stage lighting, to the stage. And Jeannie didn't want that. She wanted my show, which I was already building. And uh, she felt like I should be able to dictate where I want to go and what I want to do. So that's where I started to learn all this kind of different puppetry. I had marionettes I was building, hand puppets mm. I was building. And most of them were foam, you know, or I would rip apart a stuffed yeah. animal and make that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Convert it into a puppet. Yeah. You know, I've done some of those. Yeah. So did you, did you make this, uh, this show, a custom for their venue or was it your show and you were just finding ways to tie it into their theme or their location? I had made a Pegasus. I wanted to make a white Pegasus that flew marionette. So I had made this white Pegasus. And when you turn mm -hmm. the lights out, she glowed. You did black light. She glowed this really pretty white. So oh, Jeannie man. fell in love with her yeah. and said, Oh my gosh, I have to have this in a show. Can you write a show of fantasy around it? So it started as a shadow puppet show and my shadow puppets aren't dark on light. They're actually done with um, construction paper and then you seal it between the shelf liner that's clear. And then I segmented them so that they were colorful. So everything was really colorful. They just weren't black, they were colorful. So it started sure. with that. And it started with Greek gods or some sort of deity on high of some mountain saying, you know, um, it's time to go to Earth. Let's send Pegasus down, you know, that sort of thing. And then Pegasus would fly around. And then I had built a fairy and they, did, they had interacted with the child and whatever. And Jeannie just loved it. She she thought, oh, my gosh, this, we've got to do more shows. She said, I could write. I'll write the shows and you build the puppets. I said, okay. So I did that till I was about 18 or so. And when I was 18, she took me to meet um, Wayland Flowers of Wayland Flowers and Madam. And Wayland Flowers. Oh, neat. yeah. Oh, my goodness. I would look at. Oh, I would look at Waylon and I, when we watched him, because when you see Waylon Flowers and Madam live, I don't know. I was too young. He was in Vegas. I was too young to get into Vegas <laughs> at the time. So, but right. she was right next to him. She was like right here. And so I was really impressed with how alive she was and the fact that he was not a ventriloquist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, afterwards, my question was, wow. Your you you your mouth was moving, and he was like, "Yeah." And I said, "You're not a ventriloquist." He said, "No." And I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Because I don't want to put the time in. I don't want to be a ventriloquist. I'll just be a really killer puppeteer." And I thought, "Oh, I love that." He said, "He said you could be a killer puppeteer. You don't have to be a ventriloquist unless you want to." So I said, "Well, yeah. I really don't yeah. want to." And he goes, "He goes, I'm going to go back up there and I'm going to do a performance, and you watch me. Don't watch Madam." You watch me and you couldn't do it. You just couldn't do yeah. it. She was too, yeah. she was too dynamic and he was too, he was dull. And so that's kind of the way I do with my characters now is I loan them my voice and I, I don't worry about my mouth moving. I just create the character because the character is dynamic enough. You're watching. And now with masks, who cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even before masks, a lot of ventriloquists just had a, 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 a goofy looking puppet and they, you know, they couldn't do it like Waylon did, but uh, <laughs> they would pass as a ventriloquist and stick that in their title. But uh, no, it was really interesting. And I think he used to open with a joke about how he was, 
you know, Madam would say, you know, I'm uh, Waylon's no ventriloquist and I'm no dummy or something like that. And then they go into their bed and, and just breaking the ice with that for the new people that are that are watching Waylon, you know, kind of, uh, you know, breaks the fourth wall and, and just kind of gets that, um, you know, uh, commotion kind of settled. So it's, it was just so interesting. And, I, you know, going back and seeing clips of him and, uh, and Adam on YouTube, I mean, you look at the puppet and you're like, you know, that's so basic, you know, compared to the puppets we have today, where you can put mechanisms in them and so many different things and the way that he manipulated the arms and the just the, every every little um, aspect of, of Adam in performance is truly inspirational. So it's mm-hmm. uh, really, so you're young really kidding, great. You're watching you're watching someone like that land and doing that. Yeah. You're like, oh my gosh, wow, that is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love it. I use um I use uh, uh rods on my on a few of my characters in my show that were inspired by Waylon and uh, uh, fellow ventriloquist uh, Dan Horn. So um you were actually on a you were a judge on Food Network's Outrageous Pumpkins. Uh, how long have you been <laughs> pumpkin carving? And when uh, you got into it, was it just another medium you wanted to conquer or was it something, what was your, what was your stance when you got into that? Well, I love, I love sculpting, which is kind of funny because I fell into it. I was drawing, my mother is a watercolor artist and I was drawing and drawing and drawing, but I always had to have a model. When I sculpt, I don't really need, I can sculpt from my, from my head, which is one of the things I thought was pretty cool. Now, when I want it to be really super detailed, I'm getting ready to work on something now that I really want to be exquisite. So I'm pulling out all kinds of content to to make that I want, that I want to see and I want to do. It's all this different kind of, it's a fantasy piece. So I want to grab oh, cool. from, I'm grabbing from all elements to do it, mm-hmm. not to copy, but to create this creature that I have in my head. Sure. So I love sculpting. I was reading the newspaper, uh, the va- the daily... I don't remember what it was, but but I was looking at the newspaper and on the cover was a man who had carved some faces by removing the skin of the pumpkin and carving the flesh of it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, hey, that's kind of a good idea. I've often thought a jack-o'-lantern is a little wasteful. You have a really yeah. beautiful thick wall, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the wall's like this thick and you carve a triangle out of it. It's like, boy, that's a waste. So, yeah, two, three so triangles in color like, day. It's like, come on. Yeah, like a kid, I was like, hmm. But the guy said he used push tools. He said he used these wood carving. You could buy them for $5. And they were mm. like set of 10 push tools. And uh. it was um, November 1st. I went down to my market and I asked them if I could have some pumpkins. And they go, oh, they're free. Take as many as you want. So I took about oh, wow. six. And yeah. this is a keynote. If you're someone who wants to practice cu- pumpkin sculpting, go on November 1st. People mm. don't want their pumpkins anymore. So a lot of times you can get them for free. And sometimes they're like, we have a farm out here that it's, um, it, they're going to do a half price sale. So, you know, that's better than nothing, but I, you can go around places. They just want them gone. So they're going to, they'll charge you five bucks, one buck for something that was 40, $50 or even more. Right. So I found these pumpkins. I bought this tool set and I did two swipes on it and cut myself. And I said, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. There's got to be a better way. So I pulled out my sculpting tools, my mini ribbon sculpting tools, pull tools, and I started carving the pumpkin. And I started doing it with these pull tools. So I said, oh my gosh, this is so much easier. And oh my goodness, you know. And then yeah. I started to realize that certain, not all pumpkins are created equally. Some have very, very thin walls, some have very, very thick walls. 
And there's a variety, unfortunately, that happens in a um, market that can sometimes have a thread in it, like celery. If you catch that, the thing rips in half. So the one thing I really don't want to have a beginner do is to get that kind of a pumpkin because it's going to be devastating to them if the thing all of a sudden falls apart. You know how it is when you're beginning something. You always sure. blame yourself. And I is didn't that like want is that like getting one from like a uh, Walmart versus getting one from like a farmer's market? Like, is it the, mm -hmm. the care that's put into it or is it just uh, random? It's part of the care that's went into it. And then there's all these different varieties of pumpkins who knew. Okay. Right. I knew there were little pumpkins called pie pumpkins and bigger pumpkins mm -hmm. called jack-o'-lanterns. I had no idea there were white pumpkins called the polar bear or the ghost that underneath, if you get a white pumpkin and you scrape the flesh off it, you might get white flesh, like in a cassava, or you might get peach flesh. And the peach flesh oh, wow. is just, is so pretty. And then yeah. you light these from behind. They're just, they're just, they're just amazing. They're amazing. And so I started to sculpt this flesh and put a light behind it. And I realized that this was something that is so much fun that, I just couldn't stop. I thought, you know, and at the time, I think you think to yourself, you're the only person that's doing this. Well, I knew the guy from the paper had been doing it, but I didn't know if he knew, you know, that the scraping mm -hmm. tools were good. So I'll show you right. if it will be kind to me. I'll just show you my lady. Oh, okay. I have, I, you know, it's so funny when I do these because sometimes I, we, I was just, speaking with you earlier and saying, man, you're really good at what you do. And uh, it's good to touch with the young because they know what they're doing. Whereas me, <laughs> but anyway, here's my lady. So she oh, was wow. sculpted with a scrape tool and she's very pretty. She's about the size of a regular jack-o'-lantern about six inches tall, five inches mm -hmm. across. But what really makes them spectacular is when they're lit. So when they're lit, they just take on a whole new, beautiful lantern look to them. And it's just a spectacular way to illustrate your sculpting. So I just was like, ah! you know, <laughs> so, and so the bigger Terry, the pumpkin, you, the better. Do you have it lit while in certain processes while you're sculpting or do you light you it at the very end? Of the display? Okay. You can. I like the surprise, but yeah. you can put a light in there and sculpt to the light. Many of my students will do that. I'll say sculpt to the light, not go to it, but sculpt to it. So that way they understand hot versus cold. Because if we look at this young lady again, the thicker areas are gonna be your darker areas and the super hot areas are like her tear ducts and the yellows, all the yellows are the hot, that's punched through or nearly through. And then, so now you're beginning to play with what do you like dark? What do you like light? You like the roses, the peaches, the different colors. You start to really play in it like that. And it's, oh, it's just wonderful. Did it take you a while to get the symmetry down for that? Because pumpkin is a very interesting medium. Or were you just, just kind of, the more pumpkins you, you carved? I think I took it, looked at it and said, does it really need to be symmetrical? You know, you ask yourself, does it really need to be symmetrical or can it be weird? Because when you teach people, you don't want them to get in the magma of their mind of it's got to be symmetrical. Nature right, it has not to be perfect. Right. Way. You don't want to make it perfect. Like for one thing, I tell people that you love teeth. Like I love to sculpt teeth. So this is my cheeky and he's all teeth. He's three feet across yeah. and nothing but teeth. 
Okay, so you say, so if you love teeth, then you can say to yourself, this one's fun because it's nothing but teeth. Or everyone loves my weird pumpkin because who says it has to be a face? So there's my weird pumpkin. You know, this was to tell people to go to my front door because for some reason they kept skipping my front door. So the arm is made out of a squash and the pumpkin is just the little pumpkin that I caught. I opened up and stuck that in a hole and then it points. So the point is, is that now that you have this dimensional ability, it frees you to do whatever you want on a pumpkin. It doesn't have to be. So I'll show you a perfect example of it doesn't have to be symmetrical would be my dragon's egg. So this looked like a dragon's egg, but you see, it's not symmetrical. I just made wow. this little dragon in a fetal position and then I lit him. And it's just people go, whoa. And, and yeah. you will yeah. even, if you take a class and you do this, you may look at your pumpkin and go, "Ugh, it's really awful. And then you'll light it and you go, because the surprise factor is amazing how much light just changes the whole mood of it. So that's how I got involved in it. And I was all about lighting them. Then I meet and judge Ray Villafane, who's the pumpkin king. Mm -hmm. You've seen probably seen a lot of Ray Villafane yes. pumpkins. They're yes. just stunning. But he doesn't really like his. He likes his to be lit on the outside, and he really works with the detail on the outside, which is fabulous. But wow. And I would look at his stuff, and I'd go, wow, that's fantastic. Wow. And uh, and just watch that, that kind of – and I've done that style, too. I love it. I love it. But that's what makes us complement each other so well is that I tend to like mine lit, and you want to be aware of the thickness of the walls. And he's about be aware of the thickness of the walls to create the planes of the face or whatever he's doing. He'll pull things in like pumpkin seeds to make teeth or mm. add, you know, you can add things like other vegetables and stuff. It's just, mm. it's just a really, really fun, fun thing to do. And then you've got people like, uh, Mark, who has an Instagram page called Mark Maniac, where he does, uh, he sketches on them these elaborately beautiful illustrations, and it looks like stained glass almost. It's so nice. So it's really great to look at these different artists and say, wow, this is, this is a lot different than three triangles, you know? Yeah. yeah, I love that. I have a photo here uh, that relates to pumpkin sculpting. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little so bit about that? So I created this video. Yeah, I created this video so people could learn how to do it because so many, I couldn't reach out at the time. I wasn't, you know, you say to yourself, you can only reach so far. And this was back in a day when we didn't have the internet and social media. Social media has really right. uh, brought us all together. Thank God before the, the, the pandemic happened after this or what would mm. we do, you know? Well, so it's, yeah, it's, it's been a, been a real treat being able to connect with people, especially in this time. That's why I love doing these interviews. And especially, um, you know, one of the, the few good things to come from the pandemic is the surge of creativity. Now that everyone's kind of locked up in their homes, they're trying new things, getting out, whether it's, you know, planting a garden or getting out, trying trying different skills and, and getting a new uh, skill set and trying new hobbies. Um, will you tell the Muppet story of your audition? Kind of switching gears here. Oh, boy. Yes. So... <laughs> Uh, I got hired by Tony Urbano to go do a chicken McNugget commercial in New York. 
Now, back in the day, they were little foam critters that you sculpted with scissors. See, I thought I was just doing something to get into the industry. And the next thing you know, the industry is doing what I do. So I was like, how nice yeah. <laughs> that this happened. So you would take scissors and you would carve these little McNuggets about this big. And then it had a little mechanism that their little bodies would squeeze down and they would go like this and dance and you would work oh. them with a rod on, or whatever. They'd sit on Ronald McDonald's shoulder or they'd sit on a piano or whatever. And for some reason, we had to go to New York to shoot this. So we're in New York and we finish our day. It's like three puppeteers, Tim Blaney, who's another person you might want to interview. He's brilliant. And Tony Urbano and, uh, and myself and uh, another lady from New York who came and worked with us. But at the end of the day, Tony Urbano said, who wants to go to the opera? And I went, opera. And when I looked around, everyone was gone, except for me and Tony. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, um, and Tony says, Terry, you'll love it. We're going to go to the Met. We're going to get dressed up. And we're going to listen to do opera. And I thought, opera. And I said, is it in English? And he says, no, no, it's not in English. Uh, it's in Italian. Or it's in, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, you know, I'm just like, uh, you know, what am I, 20 years old, 21 years old? And I'm thinking mm -hmm. opera. Oh, gosh. I just, I don't, oh, no, no, no. And he says, please. So, okay, I'll, I'll well, okay, let's see how much the tickets are. So we mm -hmm. go to the Met and the only seats are box seats, which means four seats in a box like you saw if you've ever seen Phantom of the Opera or yes. anyone with glasses of importance. That's where they sit in a box. And mm -hmm. it was like $80 a person. And I'm like, Tony, it's $80. You know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. you know, if our $80 is going to go for me if I don't go? And he said, oh, please, oh, please. I've always wanted to see Opera at the Met. Oh, please, oh, please. And I said, okay, what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you want? And I said, I want to go see Ha, which was Henson's studio in New York. I said, I want to go see Ha. And he goes, well, you're not going to meet Jim. You want to meet Jim? You're not going to meet Jim. And I was like, actually, no, I don't want to meet Jim Henson. It would be nice to meet Jim Henson, but that's not why I want to go. I want to go. And you, Landon, will understand this. Mm -hmm. I could not figure out how they made Miss Piggy. Yes. I could not figure out how they made Bunsen Honeydew. I wanted mm. to know how are they doing Walking. it. It yes. wasn't Muppet fleece. I knew it wasn't mm. fleece. I knew Kermit was fleece, a fabric. But they are not fabric. And I'm going, I want to see what the, what are they made of? Mm. And he goes, okay, deal. We shook on it. I went to the opera. Most of the time I was trying to figure a way not to fall asleep. Without, because there's only four people in a box and they're all watching you. Mm. And but I managed. And then we went to Ha. And uh, while we were there, we went upstairs. And the first person to come around and say hello was Jim Henson. <laughs> Jim Henson took one look at me and went, <gasps> Now, it wasn't because I was so strikingly attractive. And it wasn't because I was this magnificent puppeteer. He had no idea. It was because I was a lady puppeteer. And he knew right away that Tony was a number one puppeteer on the West Coast. And if I was standing next to Tony Urbano, I must be pretty doggone good. So he automatically walked up, reached out his hand and said, I'm Jim Henson. How are you? And I was like, whoa, 
you know? Oh my God. And he started to ask me all these questions and Tony got a little upset and said, <laughs> she's me. And I said, no, I'm not. I haven't worked with you in a while. You know, I'm a work for hire. So please don't say that. And so right. Jim was the one who took me down and taught me about Miss Piggy and how she was made and Bunsen Honeydew, how he was made, which many of you may have seen some of the behind the scenes, but it's a foam sculpted character. And then they use a thing called flocking, which is putting glue on the foam and then using um, electromagnetic currents to make little hairs stand on the end and just coat it. They use it in animals for the detailed part in their fur and stuff. And uh, it was fascinating. I was like, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So yeah. we toured the studio and then uh, I left. And when I left, a door opened and somebody, an arm came out like, like if you watch the Adams family thing, uh -huh. an arm came out and put something in my pocket and disappeared. And I was like, what the? And then I went home and I opened it up and it was a note. And it said, Jim Henson would like you to um, audition. And uh, I looked at that. I'm now in LA. Jim Henson wants you to audition. And mm -hmm. I was like, uh, oh, I that's nice, but okay, whatever. And I put the note down and then Jim called me and I thought it was someone punking me. So I said, this isn't Jim Henson. And he goes, yes, it is. And he said, I want to know why you haven't called me back. I gave you this note, you know? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Henson. I wasn't quite sure it was real. And he was like, why want to be real? And so he said, I want you to come back to New York and work on Sesame Street. And I said, no, thank you. Now, that's the thing that's a shocker to a lot of people. They said, Terry said, no, thank you. Yeah, I said, no, thank you. I don't want to go to New York. Please, no. Did he know you as a puppet builder or as a performer? He knew as a performer. He didn't okay. know I was a builder until I told him I wanted to be a builder. I was a builder. I did. I built my own. Because Landon, you know, and anyone who builds, the only way for your puppet to work best for you is to build it yourself. You can have and someone else build it for you. It's a whole different feeling, you know, mm. out here in, Cal you know, in California, the problem is that a lot of shops would build it the way they build other props and they're always way too heavy. One of my favorite stories is Doc Ock of Spider-Man 3, where the arms of that actor were so heavy, many puppeteers were injured to make those arms work. They were physically hurt. So I said, you know, so I'm like, doesn't have to weigh a ton to be right. performed. But, you know, I wasn't about to do a movie like that where I'm going to damage my body. So you you have to kind of think it would have been a cool to work on Spider-Man, but not if I'm in traction for three weeks or three months. So these are the kind of things as a puppeteer when other people are building and you're not quite sure how they're, you know. You got to just know that that if they confer with you, you're probably pretty safe. But Jim Henson puppets were all light and fun, all foam, all beautiful, all great. But I didn't want to be in New York because I could not come down from New York. New York was too loud, too much noise, not enough quiet for me. So I told him if he ever came out to California, I wanted to work with him. And he goes, well, what makes you think I'll work with anybody that's not in New York? And I said, Dave Goltz, who plays Gonzo, lives in Northern California. And right. I said, um, Steve Whitmire, Rizzo Rat, is in Baltimore. And then um, 
or Atlanta. And then Kevin Clash was Baltimore. And he goes, oh, you've done your homework. And I said, yes, I have. So he said, okay. And he hung up the phone. And then in 1989, he came out to California and he called me again. And he said, all right, sister, here's the deal. I'm coming to California. I'm going to do Muppet 3D Vision with Disney. And you're going to audition for me. And if you're not good, I'm going to make it hell for you at that audition. Got it? And I was like, no pressure. Okay. <laughs> Bring it on, buddy. Yeah. You know, I'm just yeah. kind of, you know, I'm young and 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 I'm like, yeah, you bring that you know whatever so the day comes to do the audition and like i told you many puppeteers in california were really angry because we walked into the debbie reynolds dance studio and they said to us and you walk into a room and everybody is practicing so in one corner they've got cameras set up and people are in front of camera with their character and then the mirror some are in front of the mirror and they're doing their characters and so the lady says, hello, Cherry, I've got your name down on the list. Here's a group of puppets from the Henson Company. Pick one, and then you're welcome to practice in front of the mirror. You're welcome to practice in front of a camera. You can practice all you want. Well, one of the things that Tony Obano taught me, and Tony was a really good mentor, but one of the things Tony taught me was it, the people performing in front of the mirrors and in front of the cameras are not your competition. Not in puppets. The person who's sitting reading the paper, that's the one you got to watch out for. So I curled up and read the paper or just found one that fit well. Mm -hmm. Because again, I build so I know what I want in feel. And then I sat down and put the puppet in my lap and said, I'm going to just call the gods of improv to me. And I'm not going to show people what I'm doing. And so we went into audition seven at a time. Again, seven at a time was really taboo in California. They were just like, are you kidding me? What? But you can either be upset because there's seven, or you can calm yourself down and say, there's seven people in the room. In order for me to move forward, I can either be intimidated or intimidating. I chose intimidating. Right. I'm going to be intimidating. Now, to make life even better, there was a woman there who absolutely hated my guts. And every time she was in an audition, because she believed every time we competed, I got the job. So she just hated me. <laughs> and there she was. Okay. You know, you've got that rival in high school. Right, right. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't change. Even when you're an adult, there's always someone out there that's kind of like, So here we are, seven in a room. They have us all stand up. And the person in front of us is Brian Henson. So not Jim. And Brian says, well, you know, my father was supposed to be here, but I'm going to get us started because we can't, you know, we can't delay anymore. So we're going to have you all stand up. We're going to have you put your your puppets over your heads and you're going to count. Now, if you've ever done lip sync, you understand that counting, there's a, there's a multitude of ways to count. But the thing that's going to get you to go down the chute is if you go seven instead of seven. So they're watching for seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven is the one that's either going to have you be kept or out. The other ones are 101. They don't want you to enunciate everything 101 because you're flapping in the breeze. 
101 is what they want. 101. 101. You see? So so these were things that they line. knew. Hmm? I said that's a fine line between it is a fine line. Yeah. But if you know your stuff, it's things mm -hmm. that they knew that we should probably know. We were gonna be pros. He was looking for pros. So you just yeah. go in, and I had worked with Tony and several other people and that course. And just knew, just knew and felt very comfortable with what I was doing and didn't worry about it at all. Just went mm -hmm. right into it. So they had us count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Well, Tony Urbano also says you only have 30 seconds to take, to make it or break it. So as Brian had us all together count one, one, I did, everyone went one and I went one. And everyone went two, and I went two, and everyone went three, and I went three, and Brian said, stop. And he walked right up to me, and he looked me right in the face, and he said, let's all count together, shall we? And I was, yes, sir. But I yeah. knew now, who is he going to be watching? Out of all those seven because the question in Brian's head is, mm -hmm. did she make a mistake or is she punking me? And I was punking him. Did you, did you come up with that on the spot or was that something that you were planning when you read, when you were in the corner with your paper? Okay. You're Tony, on the said, spot Tony says, Tony, Tony Urbano. And I think this was Tony and my mentor, Pat Brimer, who has passed, just passed. Uh, both of them said, you know, the, you, you open yourself to these little gifts. Don't close the door. Just go for it. And I thought 30 seconds, I need 30 seconds of Brian's undivided attention. And there's seven people. How do I make me without being, that nah, probably was annoying actually, but, <laughs> but <laughs> so we, he, he said together. So we all counted together. So there I was counting with my puppet one, two, three, four with everybody else, five, mm -hmm. six. But when we got to seven, I looked at Brian and went like this. Seven, eight, <laughs> nine, ten. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. That is what you call sealing the deal. Yeah. Because he just yeah. didn't know. He, he really, he really didn't know what to think about me, but I had loved the Muppets and I knew the Muppets were, were people that were pranksters and playful. So I just decided to play playful.